So the definition of God, to be God, is to be what we say maximally great. Meaning God is the greatest. God is greater than everything else. If he were not, he would not be God. This is a definition here. If God were less powerful than someone else, he would not be God because there would be someone greater than him. If he had less knowledge or was less good than anything else, he would not be God because there would be something greater than him. So to be God is to be maximally great, maximum greatness. And this is where we get into the famous omni attributes, that God is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and all that. And tonight we're focusing on the fact that God is omnipotent. That is, he is omni, all, potent, powerful. God is all powerful. Jeremiah 32 verse 27 the Lord said, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Love it when God gives us those rhetorical questions. Now, the Bible makes that abundantly clear that God has all power, but it's also a pretty easy conclusion to reach when you understand what it means to be God. It just makes sense. If God is self-existent, we talked about that a few weeks ago, that God's name is I Am. He exists on his own. He is the only, as we said, necessary being, meaning that everything else that exists depends on God. Since everything has come from him, he has all power over everything. It's really hard to add to that in a lot of ways. It's a very simple idea. Even little kids get that. God can do anything. And they love to run through a list of crazy things. Could God eat a thousand pancakes? God can do anything. <laughs> He's not bound by the laws of physics because he created the laws of physics and he can overrule them. He's not bound by distance or inertia or time. He created those things. And he's certainly not thwarted by the puny authority of human rulers. Every word God has said, every threat he has made, every promise he has given is backed by the infinite power of the Most High. When you were growing up, anybody ever say to you, your mouth is writing checks that you're not going to be able to cash? The Lord doesn't do that. He is the Most High. Now, there's, there's fear in that because, okay, this God can do anything. And I know that I don't measure up. But there's also relief because you know that God's on your team. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? We've got God on our team. What are we worried about? Now, as simple as this is, though, there are some folks that want to try and pick at that and try and pick apart a simple definition. We say, God can do anything. And then some chucklehead in the back stands up and says, well, doesn't the Bible say that God cannot lie, so God can't do everything? You're right. That's Titus chapter 1, verse 2. God cannot lie. But that does not mean it's a good argument. It's not as if God is straining desperately to lie, if he could just find the strength to lie. It's a moral restraint. We could throw as many weird things out there as we want. God could turn the Everglades into a candy cane forest if he wanted to, but he won't. He could order us all to microwave baby kittens, but he hasn't. Because these are not questions of ability, these are questions of character. Because you all just reacted, right? God wouldn't do that, of course. Well, he could if he wanted to. Yeah, but we don't ever have to worry about him saying, all right, I've got an 11th commandment for everybody. God will not do anything against his nature. Now, some people want to look at the nature of God as an external thing, that his nature is external to him, that see, God is bound by his nature. No, it is internal. That's who he is. 
God is pure, holy, unadulterated reality. So for him to be unjust or immoral is not a possibility because those things are aberrations in the world. We look at good and evil as equal options. They're not. One of them is good and one of them is not. And because God is good, he always will be good. And don't think you're smart by coming in and making that old middle school joke that I have heard this line taken seriously in some circles that ought to be embarrassed to take it seriously. But can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? <laughs> yeah. And if you, Well, what's your answer? I think R.C. Sproul said this best. I don't have the exact quote, but I remembered it because it was so perfect. He said, people say absurd things and they often sound profound because you can't understand them. Right? Somebody says something really smart, you're like, I don't even know if I understand that. Somebody says something really stupid, you can't understand that either, but you shouldn't confuse the two because they have something in common. You're not a free thinker for asking that question. The world has been created by God, and he has absolute control over it. Our God makes sense, unlike that question. And this is one reason why we call God the Lord. You ever think about that? We just kind of throw it out there without thinking, and that's fine. We call him the Lord. That comes, you might know, from the Jewish tradition where they refuse to say the covenant name of God, which is I am. If you want to transliterate that, you would get Jehovah or Yahweh, and they won't say that. As they read through the Old Testament in Hebrew, whenever they come across that name, they will say Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord or Master. So in Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, you maybe have wondered about this before. It says, O Lord, our Lord. How excellent is your name in all the earth. Oh, Lord, our Lord. That's sort of strange. Why does it use the name twice? Well, actually, in Hebrew, it's two different words. The first one is, oh, Lord, that's Jehovah or Yahweh. Oh, Jehovah, our Lord, Adonai, as master. So if you wanted to translate that to where you could see the difference, it would be, oh, Jehovah, our master. Now it makes sense. But, oh, Lord, our Lord has a certain ring to it. So we'll hang on to that one, I think. But even that term, Adonai, it's used over 360 times in the Old Testament. We're calling God master a lot. It's defined as one who is sovereign in his rule and has absolute authority. We've talked about this before in the New Testament. Sometimes they'll translate it despotes, which is where we get the word despot from. You think of an absolute ruler of a country. And that's who God is. He is ruler of all. God is sovereign. Since he created the world, he has rights to the world. And because he's omnipotent, he has the power to act on those rights. A lot of times, maybe you or people we know or people you've read about in the news, they have a right to something, but because they don't have the legal power to assert those rights, they might as well not have them. Once again, God never has that problem. God has the right and the power to act on it, and that together is what we call sovereignty. God is the master, the Lord, the Adonai of the universe. He's in complete control of all things, and he can execute his will without hindrance anytime he desires. It's his world, it's his property, it's his creation, and everything in it belongs to him. There is no person, there is no sphere of influence that is outside of God's purview, because there is no outside when it comes to God. God created it, so he's the only one on the outside looking in, because he made it. That's why we refer to him as that word Lord. And you know the English history of that word. There were lords and castles back in medieval times. The Lord owned the land. The people lived on it, and there was, you worked the land. 
The Lord let you work the land. He protected you with his knights when raiders came in or whatever. And your obligation was you had to fight for him when the time came. So it's actually a perfect word, even from our own language's history, that the Lord is the Lord. He owns it, and we just live here. We are entirely subordinate to God. We have no rights even to ourselves. We are his workmanship, his very creation. Isaiah would compare it to the clay and the potter. Is the pot going to say, hey, don't make me like that? It's like, I'm the one making you. I'm the one that's in control. You have no right to answer back to God's will and God's plan. Now, we're very lucky that God is so patient with us because unfortunately, we tend to feel rather free to question God's plan and even to deny him the right to his creation and say, I'll rule myself. Thank you very much. You are not your own to rule. Remember the Jews said to Pilate when he said, shall I crucify your king? They said, we have no king but Caesar. We will rule ourselves. And I think in our, our own culture, which we kind of make a big deal about rights in our culture. It's sort of from the very beginning, we were talking about rights and what was fair and what the king could and couldn't do. So it's baked into our culture what authority can and cannot do to us. But that does not apply to God. God is the despotes. He is the Adonai. He is the Lord over us. Paul said in Romans 9 verse 20, But indeed, O man, I love how he says it that way, O human being formed out of the dust of the ground that lives maybe 80 years if you're lucky, who are you to reply against God? Are you going to talk back to God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? In fact, the very definition of sin is to go against the sovereign will of God. Adam's mistake in the garden was to assert his will over that of God. And we have all suffered for it, not just because we've reaped the consequences of his sin, but because that same attitude is in every single one of us, and we do the same thing. Now, I just mentioned that Adam asserted his will against that of God. Now, some of you might feel uncomfortable with me saying that, because the thought of going against God's will or resisting the sovereignty of God, all of a sudden you've got three or four Bible verses flicking through your head right now. I didn't think we were allowed to do that. I didn't think we were able to do that. And the rest of you might have said, oh, the minute somebody brings up one of those verses, I've got some counter verses to go right back at them the second I smell this debate coming up. The sovereignty of God has been revealed to us so that we can wonder at the Lord, that we can worship the Lord, that we can be reassured. But it has sadly caused a whole lot of fighting in the church. There are a lot of people that would want to come in and make a stronger assertion of God's sovereignty that completely eradicates the will of men. And I would say, in fairness, if you were to read some passages of the Bible in isolation, you would want to do that. King Jehoshaphat said in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6, it's a great verse, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? No one is able to withstand him. So how can we talk about asserting our will in the face of that? Well, I'd say, first of all, far be it from me to minimize the sovereignty of God, but we've got to look at the entirety of God's word. The trouble is you make decisions and choices every day. At the very least, we live in a world that has the appearance of free will, that we can make real choices. And that raises questions. The Bible says that no one can withstand the Lord, and yet it's a big, long story of people trying to withstand the Lord. We call it sin. 
Does that mean that every choice is predetermined by God? Well, that at least doesn't seem right. Did God make Eve take a bite of the fruit? Did he force Judas to betray Jesus and then judge him for it? Does he compel mothers to get abortions? Does he make terrorists blow up buildings? Our most basic common moral sense rebels against that. That just doesn't feel like the word of God. And it should make us react that way. Because God is not the author of sin. If he was, he would not be just in his judgment. At the very least, what he calls justice would be an illusion to cover up his arbitrary decisions. Does anything happen that is not God's will? Is actually pretty easy to answer that. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But it is very evident that not everyone comes to repentance. So then, is it possible to resist God's will? Apparently it is. Stephen rebuked the Sanhedrin. You remember this? In Acts 7.51, he said, You stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Remember, he said, I wanted to gather you like a, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Does anything happen that is not God's will? Yes. And God is grieved by it. God is angered by it. When we go outside of God's will, that is what we call sin. It is resisting God's will. The entire premise of the entire Bible is that there are people who disobey God's will. It's because we have gone outside of his will that we have introduced, you could say, foreign contaminants into his world. The Lord does not lie. The Lord does not grow angry without a cause. The Lord does not abuse people. But we brought those things into his world. That's what sin is. All the pain, all the devastation of life, they're not the work of God. They're the consequences of taking his perfect plan and saying, nope, we'll do it our way. And yet, in the midst of that, God is sovereign. I'm not talking out of both sides of my mouth. <laughs> How does that work? We have all the information biblically, but reconciling the two can be difficult. And some days you feel like you've got it, and then the next day you're like, I just don't know, though. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think we can safely say the idea that God determines every thought and every detail and every movement you make is not biblical. Nor can you say that everything, including and up to salvation, is by the will of man. There are very clear examples of God overruling what people were going to do. And the Lord said, you can do what you want. I'm going to assert my will here. Man has what we call agency, meaning he can make real decisions, but God is sovereign. How exactly does this work together? It can be difficult to answer that in a way that will satisfy everybody, as some of you have probably found. There's a guy named A.W. Tozer who was a preacher, writer, back in the early 20th century. And he has a great quote here that I think brings some good balance to it. And he says this, quoting now, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail or go against the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it, inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice he should make, but that he should be free to make it. Here's an illustration. If it doesn't work for you, toss it out. If it helps you, great. It helps me. It's similar to how a manager will delegate responsibility to his employees. 
They're free to operate and decide, but they have to do so within his plan and his instructions. So he helps them. He instructs them. He maybe comes alongside them. And sometimes he maybe has to override something they want to do and say, do it this way. And those who go outside of that are disciplined and sometimes fired. In the end, he's responsible for the decisions that are made. You don't show up to your boss and say, well, it was them. It's like, it was your responsibility to make it work. But it's not direct responsibility. It's the responsibility of authority. That helps me understand it. If it doesn't help you, if it just confuses you, forget it. Just go back to what the word says. Because I don't think A.W. Tozer or even myself are going to end this debate tonight. And I don't think any of you guys are that pugnacious that you want to fight about it. But I think we can say biblically that God created a world with people who have agency. That was his plan from the beginning. And I think God is sovereign enough to rule over a world where people can make real choices. In the end, God is going to bring history to the conclusion that he is determined. He has a will and he works that will out. And as Christians, our duty and our responsibility and our privilege is to line up our lives with God's sovereign plan because we know that that's always going to be the best way forward. But the sovereignty of God is not meant to spark debate unless it's charitable. If you want to talk about something like this and you're both in a good mood and you're both walking in the love of the Lord, great, talk about it as long as you want. People get angry, man. I don't know what it is about this one. People get angry, start yelling, and then it gets real personal. That's no good. But the sovereignty of God is to put us on our knees and put a smile on our faces. Because if God is in control, then we can have peace and trust him. And if God is not only in control, but on our team, then we can walk out of that door every morning expecting victory, full of faith, because God's in control and I'm on his team. Even if things break down for a while, we know how it's going to end. It's like when you go see a good movie and it gets tough and things are looking really bad and you might even have an emotional reaction to how things are going. But in the back of your head, you know it's all going to work out. And the, the fun becomes, how are they going to work this one out? I know they're going to. How is it going to work? And that's what your life becomes when you're walking with Jesus. That's God's authority. Because not only does he have the power and the right to rule over these things, but he does and he exercises that authority, despite how it seems sometimes. And the Bible reminds us of these things a lot because we tend to forget. And when we're in the moment, we start to panic. So I'm going to end here with three quick things that God has authority over. And I think they're good reminders for us. Number one, God has authority over kings, that is government. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why, Paul? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And some of us just went, man. <laughs> the nations of the world, their rulers, the various governmental systems, they're all under the authority of a sovereign God. Psalm 75 says, the Lord chooses who will rule and who will fall. You don't understand, Tyler. We live in a democratic republic and we choose our own leaders. If your God is not sovereign enough to work his will through an election, you might want to get back to the word for a few minutes. God is able to exercise his authority. Consider Saul. King Saul was chosen by the people and he refused to submit to the Lord. So God removed him and brought in a man of his own choosing. And that happened a lot in Israel's history. They'd pick their guy, there'd be a coup, there'd be a rebellion. And the Lord's like, all right, let's see if we can work. And if they didn't work, the Lord brought in somebody else. Sometimes he even allowed it to go on for generations, but the Lord was always in control. Now, the hard part 
is when we try to understand why. <laughs> why, Lord, would you allow him or her? Why would you allow that government to continue? But that is not yours to know, at least in the moment. You need to know that God is smart enough and sovereign enough to orchestrate the nations for his purposes, whether it's purposes of blessing. I've raised up this government to bless you. I've raised up this ruler or this soldier who's going to lead you to put mercy upon you, even though you deserve judgment, to give victory to people, even to bring judgment. The Lord told Israel, I've raised up that king to judge you. How vicious he is, how awful he is. I raised him up to judge you. And you read the book of Habakkuk, and he's like, Lord, they're worse than we are. And he goes, yeah, that's right. That's what I've chosen to do. He said, don't worry, I'm going to bring it back around. But for now, this is what's got to happen. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1. Especially in an election year, it's important for us to remember who's really in charge. Psalm 2 verse 4 says that the Lord laughs at wicked kings who want to assert their authority against the Lord. He's like, what are you doing? It's me. I'm God. So things might seem bleak, but he's always working to restrain evil. And you know, you know what is going to be the catalyst for the great tribulation at the end of days? When the Lord says, do you want to see what it's like when I'm not here making things better? Boom. And Thessalonians tells us the restrainer is removed and you get the Antichrist. And in seven years... The world's blowing itself up. And that's when the king of kings returns and says, now it's my turn. I'm going to assert my authority, my kingdom. Number two, God has authority over the trials in your life. Trials, temptations, whatever you want to call them. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. I'm the only one that's ever gone through this. No, you're not. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Can you say amen to that? But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Circumstances, internal pressures, they can be overwhelming. And that's when we tend to doubt God. I thought you were good, God. Look at this. I'm down in the lion's den, Lord. They're going to eat me. But the Lord's always in control. He's like a good coach who knows just how hard to push. And everybody on the team is hating his guts. He's going to kill us. And he's like, no, I'm good at this. I know how hard to push you. The Lord knows what you can handle, and he knows just what you need. When Satan wanted to buffet Job, he had to ask God's permission. And God drew the line and said, this far and no farther. There were sometimes the Bible tells us that there were demons that went beyond the lines God prescribed, and he threw them into the abyss. And when Jesus showed up, what were the demons saying? Please don't throw us into the abyss. I don't know what it is that can cause demons to shake in their boots, but it can't be good. You can trust that God will not allow that trial or that temptation to be one bit harder or one second longer than necessary. He's a good father. Fathers will allow their children to struggle. Sometimes they'll even allow them to suffer for a while. Not because they hate them, but because they're trying to mature them and grow them up and make them ready to face a sinful world. God does not allow arbitrary suffering. I know how it looks sometimes, but we trust in the character of God, not what we see in front of us. And it's because that is true that when James told us in James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, we can do it. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God knows when you need to be refined. He knows when you need to be rebuked. And he even knows when you need to be broken. He has authority over your trials, and you've got to learn to trust him in that struggle. And last one, God has authority over salvation. 
I've already touched on the debate that swirls around this issue, and I'm not going to reopen that box. But I would be remiss if I were to let controversy keep us from encouragement that God has expected us to have. Jesus said in John 15, 16, and ignore all the debate about the theology. Just hear this for your own life. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We are elect, chosen, predestined to belong to Christ. The process of salvation is not left up to the whims of chance and certainly not to the malevolence of the devil. God is constantly exercising his authority to draw people to himself. If you are in Christ Jesus, you should rejoice and be humbled and love that God in heaven chose you for salvation. How does that work? Who cares? You are picked by God. However it works, it's glorious. Don't stress about who might and might not be chosen. That's not your business. But because you have been chosen by a sovereign God, you can rest assured that your ending will be a happy one. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You ever look at your life and think, how am I ever going to last following Jesus? Look at me, I'm a mess. The Lord says, I've got that. I've got you. I'm taking care of you. He sent his spirit to purify you. And in the end, he's going to present you to his son like a father presents a bride to the bridegroom. It's far too easy, bringing it too close here, to look at the storm and ignore the one who not only walks on the waves, but can calm them with one word. God has all power. He's omnipotent. He's sovereign. He's got the whole world in his hands, we used to sing. Nothing's too hard for God. He doesn't strain. He doesn't sweat. He always accomplishes what he sets out to do. And when you understand the omnipotence of God, you understand his power. That gives teeth to the promise that Jesus made in John 14, 14, when he said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And you know he can back that up because he's the sovereign God that created the world and worked every miracle you've ever heard of. And the best part, God does not find parting the Red Sea any more difficult than answering your frantic prayer for help finding your keys. That's too small to bring to God. What, is God busy? Is his schedule stacked up? Uh, I can't deal with the small stuff. Just, you know, you know what? Go and handle that yourself. I've got to deal with the big stuff. No, the Lord's arm is not short that he cannot save. The Lord is there, sovereign, omnipotent, and ready to help. There's that famous hymn, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Forfeit? Giving it up. You could have it, but you gave it away. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Why strive? Why struggle when your omnipotent God stands ready to help?